Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, along with Bruce Kelly. We've got a couple of great topics for you today to, 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 to go over and uh, some great guests. I want to first thank our sponsor for this episode, Allworth Financial and the State of the Industry Podcast. And now I want to introduce our first guest, Alexandra Michaleski. She's the Executive Vice President at RepRisk, dialing in today from uh, Zurich, Switzerland. Uh, Alexandra, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Uh, I want to, I want to, before we get into the kind of some of the ESG topics, why don't you introduce us to RepRisk? What, what exactly is this? I know it's a, a ESG data provider, but put it into some context for us, if you will. Sure. So RepRisk is um, an ESG data science firm. So, so what we provide is qualitative research and quantitative data uh, to our clients and partners. And we see um, ESG through a risk lens, and that goes back to our history because in 1998, we started, uh, it was a small team from a credit risk department at a bank who started a consultancy focused on environmental and social risks uh, in the financial sector. So risk management is really in our DNA. And what happened was in 2006, uh, we launched our flagship data set originally as a due diligence tool for financial institutions. And today our database is the largest of its kind with data on over 180,000 public and private companies from around the world. Um, So we work with with clients um, in the financial sector, outside the financial sector. But I think when we look across our client base, our clients, our partners, they come to us for the same thing. We help them to systematically identify, assess, and then monitor the ESG risks in their business and in their investments. So you've got a good handle on uh, ESG, sustainable investing, all the things that are hot topics around the wealth management space these days. Um, I want to go back to a conversation you and I had a, a week or so ago about uh, about greenwashing and some of the things that are going on uh, maybe related to DWS group and some of the allegations that uh, maybe some of these asset managers products and strategies aren't quite as uh, aren't quite as green or sustainable as they might be uh, claiming and you and I had a really good conversation about this because there there are some divisions within the sustainable investing space. Some people see it as as greenwashing, and uh, some people see it as maybe just uh, not perfect yet. But um, can you kind of you know set the stage a little bit for that? What what exactly is going on right now in terms of the this all? So my first point is, I think that I see these, I'm more on the, on the team. This is part of the growing pains, what's happening at DWS. And it's part of the growing pains of, of the ESG industry. Um, it's been developing so quickly over the last few years. Uh, we've reached a critical mass and I started seeing a shift around 2018. But when COVID started, I think that was the real co- turning point with the adoption and acceptance of ESG and it's, you know, assets under management in ESG funds have skyrocketed over the last a couple years. So of course there's a lot of, you know, people are jumping on the bandwagon. People want to be part of that growth, want, uh, part of the, one of the hottest trends in finance. Um, and I, I see the greenwashing and the allegations of greenwashing as sort of some of the natural growing pains as the maturity, as the, as the industry matures. 
Um, and, and what's happening at DWS is, is a watershed moment. Uh, they're the ones in the spotlight now, but they're going to be, be the first of many. And every time you turn around, there's another, I mean, greenwashing is a very, very uh, headline grabbing topic these days, right? So there's going to be, I, I expect a lot of allegations being thrown around. Yeah, well, and I also want to go reference the, the, uh, the, the three essays by uh, Tariq Fancy, the, the former, uh, I guess, sustainable CIO. person, CEO over, yeah, CIO over at uh, BlackRock, where you know, he spent almost two years flying around the country on private jets with Larry Fink talking about uh, sustainable investing and the importance of it. And then it, I guess a light bulb went off for him where he said, you know, our our portfolio managers aren't in sync or buying into the what he called kind of like a marketing push. The, and, and this is where I know people like yourself sometimes push back and say, you uh, you know, it's not greenwashing if, if, if it's not all perfect yet. But what Tariq was saying, and I'm, I don't really know if I'm qualified to speak for him, but I'm going to, um, is, is that uh, there was a lot of the marketing stuff uh, is not, is, is almost superficial, that the, the portfolio managers are not completely connected to the, to the promotion of sustainable and ESG investing. And I, I'm kind of wondering if if we're at a point where we're we're moving toward closing that gap or if that gap can be closed. Or as Tariq said in some of his writing, he said if 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 these sustainable strategies worked, you wouldn't have to tell portfolio managers to do it. They would just do it. So First of all, let me say that I think I found the essays by Tariq Fancy to be interesting, to be insightful, but I found him to be too critical and sometimes, in my view, even missing the bigger point. And I think he was sort of taking aim at the ESG investment industry um, and sort of putting them under under the spotlight. And I think, should we be looking at the industry? Should we be looking at, at, at ESG data, at ESG claims, at ESG funds? Absolutely. But I think he was sort of hitting on the wrong target. For, for me, the target should be governments, <laughs> the government who are, who are there to create a legislative and regulatory framework for, for the financial industry to operate in. And, and to say, you know, to me, I felt like he was, we discussed this a bit uh, on our recent chat, Jeff, is kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater in the sense of like saying, well, you know, um, you, you take, you, you say everybody's doing greenwashing, everyone's jumping on the bandwagon, but wait a second, there were actually firms who were meaningfully and credibly doing something on ESG, not, not just five years ago, but 10 or 20 years ago. And w did they do it well enough or fast enough? Was it enough overall? No, but they did something that they thought was, was in the right line, um, was, was good and bringing things forward. And I think to throw that all under the bus now and say, yeah, everyone's just kind of um, just jumping on the bandwagon and there's a lot of greenwashing, I think misses the key point. And um, the target should actually be governments who should be creating the framework for, for ESG to operate in. So, okay, Alexander, that, that kind of segues us into the, the other part of this, this conversation that I wanted to have with you, as you, I'm sure know the department of labor here in the United States has recently uh, proposed some rules that would make it easier for uh, retirement plans, 
uh, company-sponsored, mostly retirement plans, to provide access to ESG funds. Uh, as you also probably know, in the U.S., the people who are not uh, super wealthy, most of their assets are in these qualified retirement plans, and there's almost no access to ESG funds on those plans. Um, and the, those, the access or rules around that access, even though it's always been super low, you, uh, there's been virtually no exposure to ESG funds on those menus. Um, it, it is often attributable to, to rules that are put in place, depending on which uh, political parties in power in Washington. Uh, but I also think it has a lot to do with the plan sponsors themselves playing almost legal defense, uh, kind of, you know, managing to the lowest common denominator, no offense intended to anyone out there. Uh, but the, they have to, they have to put, uh, products on their menus that are not going to get any of their investors in trouble. So my, my question for you is what, what does this mean to you when, I mean, are we going to start to see, or should we start to see more, more sustainable strategies, ESG strategies on these retirement plan menus, or, or is are we just forever without access at the basically the retail consumer level? No, I think that there's there's a, a big wave now for the retail and consumer level when it comes to ESG. We see that in our business and the, and the discussions that we're having. And I think it, it, it to me, it's all a reflection of, again, I go back to this idea of the critical mass, right? There's enough understanding and awareness about ESG and people who have their money in, in, in these pension funds, they want, or in these accounts, they want to have options for ESG. And we've just reached the point where there's enough of that uh, enough of that support, enough of that awareness to to make these uh, these options necessary, and, and 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 hopefully they'll be attractive as well. But I think going back on a, one of the points you said in the in the previous uh, question that we were discussing, I think this 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 um, ESG funds. There's a lot of self interpretation of ESG, right? That's why we're we're discussing even this greenwashing. Uh, problem um, because in absence of a, of a framework, there's no clarity and comparability. So there's a lot of people left, uh, they left up to their own devices to interpret what ESG means for them, for their firm or for them as an individual when it comes to the 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 pension funds and the people who have the the money in the pension funds. So, I just see this as one of of many steps that are happening in the U.S., in Europe, across the world to kind of create um, the, uh, the embed ESG and to create some sort of clarity and comparability around around this topic. Uh, Bruce, anything for Alexandra? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Uh, good morning, Alexandra. Or good afternoon, I guess, uh, where you are in Switzerland. Um, I just wanted to ask you about um, uh, rep risk and how, what, what the work you do actually with, um, you know, uh, your clients uh, who are wirehouses or banks and the like, and how that affects, you know, their private bankers or financial advisors. So what, what is it, you guys are analysts, you do reports, on ESG, obviously, but just if you could ex describe to me the process. Sure. So, so as I mentioned at the beginning, RepRisk looks at ESG through this risk lens, and the way that we evaluate companies on ESG risks 
is through an outside-in approach. And what I mean by that is we don't analyze um, company reporting or company disclosures. Instead, we look at external sources and stakeholders. So we're looking at media and regulators and NGOs and governmental bodies and think tanks. And we look at what are they saying about uh, how a company is conducting its business on ESG around the world. So essentially, we help our clients assess whether companies walk their talk on ESG. And, and the work that we do, we've been doing this work for 15 years. It, um, it's done through a combination of technology, so AI and machine learning, uh, together with a human analyst team. And um, we update our data on a daily basis to make sure that our clients have, um, have access to timely information. Um, and, and at the end of the day, they come to us to help them um, identify, assess, and, and quantify and monitor risks in their business. So when we look across our, our client base, if we look, for example, at the investment management clients that we work with, we're, we're talking about three core use cases. Uh, one use case is, is due diligence. So using Repris data to, uh, for pre-investment due diligence on ESG risks, like, like human rights abuses or child labor or corruption and, and other issues. The second use case is risk monitoring. So staying on top of all the evolving and emerging ESG risks for any company in the portfolio, and then monitoring any company that they're potentially looking for for future inclusion in the portfolio. And the third use case is a, is a more recent one is this idea of, well, first of all, engagement with the company. So using such data um, um, to engage with that portfolio company and to see how we can, that, that, that sustainability journey of that company can be moved forward. Um, but also for value creation with this idea that it's not just about risk management, but it's really about adding value, creating value for those portfolio companies. So using the data as a conversation starter about the ESG journey uh, of that company with the idea that ESG is linked to long-term value creation and it'll make for a better investment in the long term. Thank you. Are, are, you, are you considering any with, with this big, um, you know, as you said, with COVID and this huge rush into ESG investing, is rep risk changing at all? Are you going to add, are you, are you contemplating adding new services for clients or, or what's your, what are you guys working on over there? While we operate in the ESG data space, we're not a traditional ESG uh, rating agency like some of the other organizations in, in the space. We really come from this background of due diligence and data science um, and, and with this risk focus that, that we have. And so our, our focus the last 18 months has really been to double down on providing and building out the breadth and depth of the data that we provide to our clients um, when it comes to ESG. So um, adding additional uh, features. Uh, we're working on, for example, on a geospatial uh, risk feature where we are mapping GPS coordinates of mines and, and oil and gas pipelines and other projects in the extractive industry. We're mapping the GPS coordinates uh, and we're overlaying that with um, with environmentally sensitive areas, biodiversity sensitive areas. So then you can see if a specific mine is sitting on or next to a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So there's a lot of new data sets and new data that's available to really help our clients um, manage risks uh, in a timely way, but in a very um, uh, data-driven data way um, by building out features when it comes to the data that we provide. That's great. Thank you. Alexandra, um, I want to kind of 
uh, sort of wrap up with if you can give us a little bit of an what you see as your outlook for uh, ESG investing, uh, if you can, from the a little bit through the prism of, of financial advisors, which is what our audience is primarily, um, fin- professional financial intermediaries that work with uh, individual consumers, um, what, should they expect uh, that ESG is eventually going to be headed toward a point where it is not considered something extra or an outlier or a different path you have to go down, but it's just where uh, the way analysts and asset managers look at investing. Yes. So I think that if we were having this conversation in a few years, um, it's hard to predict, maybe five, maybe 10, it's all moving so quickly, but maybe the, the, the acronym ESG won't even exist anymore right now, or in the last years, it's been like this sort of separate um, concept or a separate discipline. And it's been something that you had to do. And then sort of over time, it's been more and more embedded. And I think with the direction that we're going is that it becomes just another aspect of a company that you must look at when you do a comprehensive company analysis or or evaluation of a company. So I think that's, that's the direction that it's going. And I think the, the, um, the financial advisors and the, and the retail sector is, is the next wave in this, in, in the ESG space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it uh, obviously can't be ignored, even though there's some a lot of skeptics out there, and and to me, rightfully so. You to me, anything new should be tested and and measured and and certainly regulated. Um, but it's not the kind of thing that uh, you can just say, "I'm not." It's not happening. It's not real. I'm going to ignore it. it. It sounds like um, Alexander. I want to thank you a lot for being on the on the program and um, let's not wait five or ten years to talk again okay let's uh, let's talk more regularly okay I'd really like that thanks so much for having me pretty much every single day you see another headline about financial sector consolidation whether you run an RIA a hybrid or you're an independent broker dealer supported advisor if you're looking for news and information about advisory sector mergers, acquisitions, or partnerships, Scott Hansen, co-founder of Allworth Financial, has it on the State of the Industry podcast. Here's something interesting. The first three quarters of 2021 have already broken last year's record for M&A activity with roughly 160 deals. And that number is likely going to accelerate with the end of the year approaching and 2022's expected capital gains tax increase. Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and by searching Allworth Financial State of the Industry Podcast. You can find more information at allworthpartners.com. Hey there, welcome back everybody for the second uh, part of the show here. Uh, today we have a, uh, uh, long time source of investment news, Scott Silver, uh, who is a plaintiff's attorney based out of uh, Southern Florida, I believe. I can't remember if it's Boca or, or, Palm, or Palm Beach County or, or, or where Scott, very, uh, um, Scott, how you doing? And welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate you guys having me on today. Uh, I am Boca Raton based. That's right. With a uh, fairly active practice around the uh, country, like you know, licensed in New York and Florida. And Boca Raton means mouth of the rat, I believe, in Spanish. <laughs> and we have been accused of having uh, quite a few around town over the years. <laughs> 
South Florida is also kind of in a, um, it's, it's, uh, it's funny. You and I have spoken about a lot of bad brokers over the years, uh, guys who get booted from the securities industry and wind up in the, um, uh, selling insurance and quite often insurance that looks like a security and all this kind of stuff. Um, can you just tell me about kind of, um, uh, well, first of all, we asked you on the show to discuss this firm Warden Capital Management, which I just did a column about this week. And I've already gotten two uh, uh, phone calls from people saying, geez, you don't know the half of it with this Warden Capital Management. They were um, uh, essentially the, the owner and CEO of the firm, a guy named Jamie Warden, um, was barred from the securities industry uh, about a week ago by FINRA. And he had something like he has something like 10 or 11 open customer complaints against him, uh, totaling five or six million dollars in in damages and investors seeking their damages. Um, He's employed many, many brokers over the years that have been barred or um, suspended by FINRA uh, for churning activity. It seems the common thread at the firm is churning and. uh, the firm itself uh, is closing down, and at the end of last year, it was fined by FINRA uh, uh, $350,000, I believe, for lax supervision due to churning in order to pay clients like a million, million two back in restitution. Um, you, you, uh, uh, you and I talked about this, and you have some knowledge and background about Warden, but the thing that's important here is that this firm is closing down and it and investors are left with no recourse because they signed to agree to sue in FINRA arbitration as opposed to, you know, the local court, local courthouse. And if the firm isn't around, how can you sue it? Right. So there's a lot to unpack here with this word and capital management. So, yes, it's a constant issue that we've seen in the brokerage industry that we've been discussing for 25 years now, this concept that we have a lot of small brokerage firms that are engaged in gross misconduct. And what I mean by that is not talking about a rogue broker, but a firm that is set up and designed to take advantage of customers that takes years to get on the regulator's radar screen. And that when it's ultimately closed, leaves a wake of investor victims who have no chance to recover their losses. The debate about arbitration or court is important, but is also more procedural than it is substantive. That at the end of the day, the once these firms close up, the likelihood of collecting any of the uh, improper losses uh, becomes virtually impossible. Yeah, and and Warden uh, Capital Management, which was based on Wall Street here in Manhattan, and had about a half a dozen branch offices in the New York area, it has filed uh, its termination notice with FINRA. It is fi- it is in the progress of closing down. I tried calling them this week. Uh, that well, there's no website, for example, and I tried calling them this week, and the mailbox was full. And I tried calling Jamie Warden's attorney, who you know said he wasn't authorized to speak about anything like this, you know? Okay. So um, I would hate to be an investor uh, like the one you talked about. You have one claim against Warden, I believe, one lawsuit. 
So we have one um, active lawsuit that we had filed um, in the last uh, three months that alleged that they had engaged in churning and that basically they took a uh, elderly client from the Midwest um, and generated $200,000 in commissions on a portfolio of about that size, despite the fact that anybody looking at this account, the account would have to have made over 100% annually just to uh, break even. Even a uh, major wirehouse broker would blush at the numbers that these guys were doing. And we received notice from FINRA this week that because Warden Capital's license has been revoked or uh, surrendered, that the client now has the option to bring the case in court versus in arbitration. But it doesn't change the fact that the statistical likelihood of getting paid restitution for the misconduct now drops dramatically, uh, virtually to nothing. I mean, the firm is out of business and will be uncollectible. The thing that gets me about these claims, and then Jeff will toss it over to you, is that, you know, the the securities industry says, hey, arbitration is good, it's fast, it's fair, you know, even though the home court, the home team, FINRA, is adjudicating it. Um, sign this mandatory arbitration agreement with your brokerage uh, agreement and, and, and the like. Um, and, you know, if something goes wrong, uh, we have insurance, you know. And um, with... It, it's just to me, it's it's so confoundingly wrong that this is the pitch to investors and then these small firms in particular. It's not the big firms who are the big problem here. The big firms have a different <laughs> set of issues, right? They don't like to hand over evidence and discovery and all that kind of stuff. They drag their feet, um, as 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 you and I have discussed before too, and I've, with many people. Uh, but, um, it's these small firms, you know, Warden was just set up in 2009. It had, I think around 50 brokers, according to FINRA, something like that. Um, so it's a small shop. It operates quickly. It turns through its, its registered reps. Um, and there's no, you know, and I, and again, yes, you know, the investor, um, is, is trusting the broker here, but has the ultimate power to make the decision to invest in the broker. But these guys, as I understand it, um, Scott, were cold calling too, right? Yes. So this operated, it seemed, on a classic model of cold calling retail, unsophisticated investors around the country. Uh, The investors that I have been speaking to have are the most um, unsophisticated investors who didn't have a lot of experience and we're trusting that the people on the other end of the phone line were the professionals that they claim to be. But the constant that we seem to be hearing from investors is that their accounts were being churned. And, you know, it's remarkable in this environment where people could trade commission free. It's not hard for FINRA to spot these kinds of firms <laughs> right. and identify uh, th- this kind of an operation. Yeah, and, and just to things. the lay people out there, like uh, Jeff's golf buddies, uh, churning of accounts is when the um, broker or brokers get a hold of an, an account and then just trade it and generate huge commissions off of it. Um, so what Scott, you know, was referring to before, 
was that, you know, you can have an account of a hundred or $200,000 and someone can generate, you know, that much money in commissions off of it. Uh, meaning that you'd have to, you know, double that account just to, just to break even in a given year. So churning really is one of these old school things, particularly, you know, you go to Fidelity or Schwab, you don't even have to pay to trade. So, uh, Jeff, I just wanted to toss it over to you. Yeah. Um, and to be clear, my golf buddies are not lay persons. They are churning accounts, probably as we speak. Um, <laughs> are they turning their own accounts or, or clients do? Most likely any account they can get their, their little hands on. Uh, anyway, <laughs> shout out to my golf buddies. Um, yeah, this is a, this kind of stuff just irritates me to no end. And I, I have so many questions about this. One is you're right, Bruce. I mean, anybody can trade for free now. So why is anybody paying anybody to trade for them? Um, I can understand paying somebody to build portfolios for you, but, you know, taking advantage of people that don't know that, you know, trading is, is the now is, is the free thing now. Um, I just can't get over that this can still happen. But my question really for you, Scott, um, and I guess for you too, Bruce, a little bit is, um, Bruce, you mentioned that, you know, these clients don't have a lot of recourse because of the fact that they signed over to, I think, FINRA arbitration as opposed to going to court, but would, would they have, would they have any recourse if they did take something like this to court? Cause it sounds like the business is kind of defunct, right? It might not make a big difference collectability wise to go to arbitration or court, but FINRA arbitrators, they're to the extent they're, they're trained, you know, it's to look at a case and look at the traditional types of claims like suitability. Now that when a firm goes out of business and to allege that a brokerage firm operated a business model to churn accounts, to be able to pursue a claim that the fundamental uh, business model was flawed and to name the control people, the owners and the principals of the uh, firm, you can never really get that kind of discovery or it's very challenging in arbitration. Um, You would have to go to court to really be able to get the type of discovery that you would need. But even then, um, it presents with a lot of challenges. What I'm hearing from my clients um, and from the others who have called me that really shocks them is one, there is most likely, and there's certainly no requirement by any of these firms to have any insurance. Um, There's nothing there for the uh, investors to bring a uh, claim covered that There's an insurance policy to cover these types of claims. There is also no requirement for these firms to have any net capital that would be able to satisfy these claims. I mean, 25 years ago, I was talking about nickel broker dealers, meaning they needed to have $5,000 in capital to open. And that hasn't changed much over the uh, years. And so you're right. There is nothing, it wouldn't make much of a difference procedurally um, to get a worthless award, but for someone to be able to pursue those claims, arbitration isn't really geared up to pursue that kind of claim. And then for the investors, I thought one of the best questions I've had from a client this, this week is how did FINRA look at these guys over the last two years and a few months ago only hit them with a $350,000 fine. If they're seeing that these guys are 
engaged in a business operation to turn the accounts. Where, you know, they are frustrated by where are the regulators? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a clear pattern, Jeff, here. I mean, I think I, through the FINRA website, I tracked down maybe a dozen or so uh, Warden Capital Brokers, not including the owner, Jamie Warden, who had either been barred or suspended, you know, usually with some kind of allegation of churning attached to him, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it goes back two years, maybe to 2019, those cases started popping up maybe late 2018, maybe, but definitely 2019. So this was definitely on FINRA's radar. You know, I, I always, you know, we whenever we do a story like this, we call up FINRA, they say that they're concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, they're trying to work on a new rule to give some relief to people about this. Um, the, uh, when I was looking through stories, um, Scott and Jeff that we had done, you know, I think Piaba, which is the, um, public, uh, uh, a plaintiff's bar association, um, that Scott is a member of, um, you know, I think they tallied up something like $5 million in unpaid arbitration awards in 2020. Um, a few years ago, that number was much higher. It was like 30 million, but the percentage of of awards that go unpaid seem to be pretty steady over the years, around 25 or 30% of total awards. So to me, that's, you know, and FINRA has been trying to do something about this or saying they're trying to do something about this. Um, They never give us anybody to really talk about it uh, candidly because they're FINRA Uh and they're a bureaucracy. Um, So uh, it's, it's just this persistent, uh, a, a galling problem, I think, for the securities industry that, you know, gives every, and it gives everybody a black eye. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I don't understand how they, how they do things over there at FINRA, but this is just <laughs> embarrassing and shameful. And it's almost like we should, you know, we should have a dirty dozen link on our website of just kind of, you know, featuring guys like this warden guy and, his little operation. Um, what a mess. I, you know, in credit to you guys, you've run those kinds of stories over the years and you've run the reports showing which firms are hiring the most brokers with problematic CRDs, the subject right. of customer complaints, um, who are paid out rewards. There's certainly a theme in the brokerage industry that bad brokers seem to keep moving to smaller and smaller brokerage firms to avoid detection. Uh, but in this era of, you know, everything's about data and the ability to mine this kind of information, uh, it should be at FINRA's fingertips. As the complaints were piling up against warding capital, it doesn't take long to do a uh, cost equity analysis on an account to realize well, this company specializes in uh, working with small retail investors, and yet these are some of the most speculative. It's not even speculative trading. Speculative implies you're taking high risk for potential high, high reward. They're engaging in nonsensical trading because the fees and costs make it virtually impossible for the investor to ever make a profit. Thank you, Scott. I'm sure this won't be the last that we hear of this type of problem. Unfortunately, no. Um, I would recommend if anybody wanted to, you know, learn more. I mean, Piava has done some great studies 
on this issue, as well as uh, NASA, the state securities uh, regulators, and has several suggestions of ways, you know, the situation could be approved, including putting together a pool of money uh, for when these brokerage firms go out of business. Uh, but unfortunately, I do think it's a problem that's going to get worse before it gets better. Well, that's uh... <laughs> we hate to end the podcast on a downer, but we're going to do it this week, I guess, Jeff. And uh, hey, Jeff, you know, if it's Monday, uh, it's time for another investment news podcast. We want to thank our sponsor, of course, Allworth Financial and its State of the Industry podcast. We also want to thank our special guests, Alexandra Michaelskew and, of course, Scott Silver. We also want to thank our producer, Stephen Lamb. You can find our podcast at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Follow us, please, on Spotify. And you can reach out to Jeff with golf tips uh, and, and uh, sundries on Twitter. He's, his handle is at Benji Ryder. Mine is at BDUsGuy. Uh, stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week. Mm-hmm.